Welcome to Faith and Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. To tax the rich or not to tax the rich? That is really not the question. Today, I'm excited. We're gonna we got a fun conversation with my comrade uh, Chris, and he is a a future member of the For the People organization, the local in St. Louis. A great comrade, and he's gonna help us think through these questions around taxing the rich and organizing for reform in imperial cores, uh, questions of social democracy and democratic socialism, uh, and also kind of how might Maoism help us think through some of these questions. Uh, We're not going to be talking about AOC. We're not going to be talking about her individual politics or ideology because that's not important. What's important are the contradictory political ideologies and contradicting political lines that are emerging right now. And so hopefully this conversation on social democracy, democratic socialism, Maoism, all that stuff will be helpful and clarifying for those who are continuing to kind of clarify exactly what ideology is correct in their minds and why. So hope you all enjoy it. Again, this is my conversation with the Apostle Chris on taxing the rich. I've got the Apostle Chris with me today. Well, hey there, podcast listeners. I am in St. Louis, Missouri, and I am a prospective member of an organization called For the People, and I'm also a hospital chaplain, and um, I do church ministry as well. So I got a lot of I got a lot of stuff I do. Nice. Done some youth ministry, some other kinds of ministry. And Chris, you just said that you are a prospective member for For the People. What is the ideology that For the People follows and practices? We call ourselves a Mao-ish organization. So most of us are Maoists. (laughs) Marxist, Leninist, Maoists. I think we'll talk about that a bit later. But yeah, hey, check it out. If you have uh, FTP in your city, you should send them a message on Facebook or find them on Twitter or something. And say what up, because they would love to invite you to some stuff. Yeah, a bunch of them are on Instagram, too. I follow them. Really great work. I highly recommend what y'all are doing. Very cool. So Chris and I, we are both two members of the white working class here in the U.S. Or, I don't know, proletarian settlers. Not sure how you want to identify it. But we are proletarian, and we are settlers here in the imperial core of the U.S. And I think that is going to – that's an important thing to name uh, for this conversation that we're about to have. Because we are about to have uh, a little chat on the the Twitter storm that happened around what AOC wore to the Met Gala, right? The tax the rich dress that everyone seemed to be very, very concerned about. But we're actually not going to be talking about an individual today, AOC. And we're not really concerned at all with an individual's ideology or an individual's political line because that stuff's not important. What's important are organizations' ideologies and organizations' political line and the development of correct lines that can enable masses of people to struggle for freedom and, and liberation, right? To win revolutions and to carry through those revolutions all the way to communism. So again, even though... This past week, a person named AOC wore a dress to some kind of fancy schmancy ball and 
and it caused a firestorm. Again, text the rich. Was that awesome or was that crap? That's really not what we're really interested in doing, focusing on an individual. But we do believe that different political ideologies and political lines are in a contradictory relation with one another. And it's really important for us to dialectically discuss, okay, is this political ideology correct or how does it differ from another and how do they contradict? Chris, does that sound cool to you? Oh, absolutely. Sweet. And we want to we want to kind of begin by saying that this this tax the rich thing. Um, surely, a lot of listeners of Faith and Capital are excited about the idea of taxing the rich. We want to begin by saying we think this is a good impulse. That um, of course, most of us understand that um, the extremely wealthy, those who control a lot of land, a lot of capital, a lot of labor, um, are the ones who who drag us through the dirt all the time, drag us into wars, uh, make our lives a living hell, many of us. Um, so we understand taxing the rich, not as um, not, not as saying like people have, a, have terrible um, intentions, right? Not, we're not saying that you have terrible intentions if you want to tax the rich. We're saying that that is a political strategy. It's not going to get us where we want to go. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The dreams and the goals of not suffering as much, that's a very fair and an honest goal and longing that a lot of people desire, even in imperial cores, right, to not suffer as much. But yeah, we're going to dive into why this might be a little bit problematic. So let's go ahead and dive into it. Chris, why shouldn't the masses in the U.S. or any imperialist nation for that be organized around slogans and efforts that seek to, quote unquote, tax the rich? or even unionize and cooperativize for the ultimate and final goal of a so-called nicer distribution of this nation's wealth? For sure. The answer to that question, I think, is actually really simple. When we go back to a Marxist analysis of the wealth produced, the wealth that you and I live on, we can understand that most of the wealth produced for us does not come from the United States. And most of it that does comes from uh, service work, from um, more degrading kinds of work done by colonized nations in the United States. But let's go back to this idea that that our system of production is not a United States system of production. It's a world system. Um, I mean, we could think about just a few basic commodities. Oil. Where does our oil come from? Where does our... Where do our vegetables come from? Indiana. <laughs> My backyard. <laughs> My backyard. Oh, God, that's a slogan for sure. I'm not part of this. I grow vegetables in my backyard. That's but, a great point, though, right? I hear you talking about the reality that the entire economic system um, that the U.S. is kind of wrapped in and, and dependent upon is a global economic system. And so the masses of commodity production and resource extraction is happening beyond even the borders of the settler colonial state, that is the United States. And so to understand the wealth of this nation, you have to understand how it relates to all other nations across the world. Uh, not just in the past, but also in the present. I think that's a really good 
good point, right? That question externally, how are we relating to literally all of the other nations, but particularly the nations that are currently colonized and neo-colonized are feeling the weight of imperialism. How did the U.S. get all this wealth? And why are so many other nations so deeply fucking poor? Mm -hmm. That's a really important question. Let's say oil comes from the Middle East. Who does the oil belong to? We have to answer that question. For whom is this oil a resource? If we're we're communists, uh, we should have a clear answer to that question. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. And so that's definitely a look on the external relations. And then there are also, uh, I think, internal relations that can speak to this question. And the first thing that pops in my mind is that, again, we are a settler colonial society. And the motto or the slogan that says tax the rich leaves the question of settler colonialism completely untouched. So you can be completely for redistributing a part of the the wealth and the capital that's being extracted from the bourgeoisie. You can be for that, but completely against ending our settler colonial relations with the masses of indigenous nations and peoples who lived here much longer before settlers came and colonized this land and um, their communities. Um, Another question that leaves untouched internally is the question of the continued colonization of black and African peoples. Um, Absolutely unquestioned, right? It doesn't actually, there is this kind of mythical, well, if we just like tax the rich, then we can redistribute it to black people and make amends for slavery or uh, Jim Crow or the reproduction of slavery through the incarceration system. And I think that's really disgusting, really gross. Uh, that's that's not going to happen. African people can never be free as African-Americans, right? The, the, the nation that colonized them. So I do think that internally, again, the whole tax the rich or even just progressive unions or the pursuit of cooperatives, whether that's housing or labor, that stuff's not actually questioning these fundamental contradictions, relations of colonialism and imperialism. And the last thing that popped in my mind was... Um, the fundamental question of power in terms of class and proletarian power, which is not inseparable from the questions of black and indigenous freedom and sovereignty. But I also think the organizing for strong labor unions or uh, even, you know, when I was first diving into Marxism, Richard Wolff really got me into the whole cooperative mindset, cooperative housing, cooperative labor structures, all that. And and it's really good. I think it'll be useful in the future. But pre-revolution, if there isn't an ultimate and explicit goal of making revolution so that we can establish a dictatorship of the proletariat and transition through socialism to communism, then really, it really is like, let's just organize labor so that the working class has a better share of the imperialist profits. Or let's make housing really, really nice for the masses of people in the imperial core and not give a shit about housing all across the world. Because if you're paying really low rents, or if you're making great benefits and high wages, even if you're exploited, as we've seen um, in imperial cores, you're going to be really, really probably uninterested and sacrificing very much for the masses of proletarians across the world. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's take a concrete example. Let's let's just make up an abstract um, factory. We're going to produce, uh, we'll say we're an automobile factory. We're going to make cars. We're going to make very fancy cars. Uh, we have a um, multinational 
organization that we're a part of. We have one factory in the United States that we unionize and we fight for strong wages and benefits. Uh, we fight for each other as workers. And on one hand, this is a beautiful thing. I would love to, to have more militant um, people who love their co-workers in the United States. What a beautiful vision that is. On the other hand, when those wages come to us who work in the Imperial Corps in this automobile factory, the places where most of our resources come from to assemble these cars are from places where um, these, these uh, riches are not enjoyed. Places where usually the resources actually come from. They come from the earth, from these places. They come from the incredibly overexploited labor of, of colonized and semi-colonized people. We can't get around this. Absolutely. And you just picked up that book by Dorothy Soul or Dr. Zerl. To Work and to Love. Yeah, To Work and to Love. I did a episode on it back with another friend. And in that book, I remember Dorothy Soul talking about this one moment where she's in Germany and she's a part of this movement trying to get German workers, right, working class Germans, to support this cause against uh, an imperialist and anti or uh, and a colonial war happening. And they're largely uninterested. The entire industry uh, of these workers are largely uninterested because guess what? They're pretty comfortable with it. And they actually reap a lot of uh, benefits from the imperialist and colonial war that was happening. So I, th so I think there's just endless amounts of examples where workers in imperial cores and imperial nations can easily be bought out into that nationalist identity that actually undermines that proletarian internationalism. And the last thing I'll say about that is, per the organizing effort, you know, uh, I think both Chris and I, uh, we would say that we're not against organizing, right? Organizing is really important. Organizing labor, organizing communities, organizing culturally, organizing tenants, right? All this stuff is really important. But the ultimate goal and the the strategies that taken towards the ultimate goal really do matter. And we'll come back to that later on. Let's go ahead and move on. So, Chris, let's uh, let's talk about social imperialism. I think this is all kind of related to this AOC Twitter storm that people kind of had a fuss about. And it opens up a lot of room for great questions. And so, yeah, I, the next thing I wanted to think about was what's social imperialism in your mind? Yeah, well, Lenin defines it. So... I'm going to escape my mind for now and just quote Lenin like a good communist. Uh, social imperialism is simply socialist in words, imperialist in deeds. And we have a, a strong tradition in the United States of being social imperialist. The most of the, the uh, quote unquote socialist movements that arise in the United States fit into this perfectly, where there's a strong emphasis on uh, redistribution of wealth within the United States without a decolonial and anti-imperialist lens. And because of that, um, it can't be anything other than social imperialist, right? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? This emphasis on internal, say, collectivity or call it socialism, right? You might call it democratic socialism or social democracy. It doesn't matter. But universal health care and cancellation of college debt and all of these social goods, um, you know, really affordable housing without any conversation on ending the U.S.'s global military and economic regime 
that's social imperialism. Social imperialism is when, again, you're talking about socialism or social goods, call it, for yourself and for your own quote-unquote nation at the expense of or without question of how that your nation is in relation to nations of the world. And especially the U.S. as the imperial power of the world. <laughs> you know, we're not second. We're not third. We're not even like among the top ten. We are the fucking most brutal military dictator uh, that has organized the entire world economically and socially. So, I, I mean, decades ago, right, King, uh, who was a more of a social democrat or call him a democratic socialist, doesn't matter. But uh, this democratic socialist or social democrat MLK Jr., he, he even came to the conclusion that he was like, wow, the U.S. is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And I don't know. I've, I heard that through my liberal years. I don't think I really conceived that. Maybe I would have said, well, sure, maybe at the time, but maybe not in com you know, comparison to you know, this other nation or that nation. But when you think of it, think of what he's saying. He really is saying that it is, that the United States was, and I think many of us would argue, is, continues to be, not only the greatest purveyor of violence, but the greatest preventer of well-being, of, of right relationship, of genuine, thriving human and planetary well-being. The United States. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we in the U.S., we need to sit with that a little bit longer once in a while. You know, we need to pray or meditate or, or sing about how fucked up the United States is. <laughs> Hey, congratulations, everybody. You're number one. Yeah, and it's it's. I think it's especially hard because of how powerful our U.S. exceptionalism and innocence has been embedded within us. We've mm. been raised to think, and 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 constantly, all right, all throughout the Biden administration, and and even you know throughout the Trump administration, we heard, man, it's so disappointing that the world doesn't respect us again. And now that Biden and Harris are in power, they're like, oh, finally, people respect us again. We're a global superpower. The world needs us. We need to lead the world. And it's like the question is, is what? And like, and suffering? We need to like <laughs> lead them into greater degrees of suffering and agony? I... Yeah. And along these, with these questions, there's so many directions we could go. We could think about how how these these abstract categories given by politicians like the world needs to respect us wow as socialists we understand that that there is there is social class in every society that exists there is no world perspective that's not a thing who who do you want to respect you <laughs> yeah and who is us Right, because because when CNN, the most liberal of institutions, you know, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Times, when they talk about us, they are trying to erase our own divisions of class and our own realities of colonialism internally in the U.S., not just mm -hmm. abroad, but also internally. Yeah. And yeah, they're absolutely right. I'm well, sure good. Uh, many of your listeners probably <laughs> understand this intimately when their boss calls them a family or says <laughs> we're oh. all in this together <laughs> absolutely yeah i had a boss recently talk to me and and suggest that he was a father <laughs> a father figure to me to which i almost screamed but i'm not gonna dive into all those details yeah 
I feel you on that one. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, back to your quote from Lenin, um, and, and that quote is from Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Great short read. Highly recommend it uh, if you all haven't read it yet. Um, but socialism or socialist in words, imperialist in deeds, that is a no-go. That is bad stuff. So we should definitely be on the lookout for any kind of political tendency in the U.S. or any imperial core that, again, talks socialism in words, but actually is imperialist in deeds. Excellent. So we, we've talked about, we've mentioned social democracy and democratic socialism. And if you've ever sat in a DSA meeting or kind of early training, there will be a theoretical differentiation between democratic socialism and social democracy. And so I thought it would be important to discuss what are these two things, Chris? What, what's social democracy? What's democratic socialism? And then also, how have they materially and historically related to one another? Well, let's just take the surface level first, okay? Social democracy, I'm going to speak in broad, broad terms. Social democracy um, does not see itself as a threat to capitalism as such but believes that the worst excesses of capitalism can be tamed through strong uh, social welfare systems, through um, strong labor unions, perhaps, that can stem just the worst effects of capitalism. But as we've already talked about, what that misses clearly is that wealth, by and large, is not produced in the United States, even if we could somehow find a an egalitarian kind of United States. It would be an imperialist United States. So democratic socialism, on the other hand, uh, understands itself as um, ushering in this era of socialism that um, we could argue that is similar to what, you know, a Marxist-Leninist or a Maoist or a Trotskyist or a whatever the hell might also think of as socialism. Um, but they think they can do this through uh, non-revolutionary means, as in not uh, no revolutionary violence, no warfare, no class struggle, um, no no actual class struggle. So they can do this through electoralism, through strong union work. So I think these are these are the the two ideologies we're sort of lifting up and putting in conversation. Yeah, I definitely hear that in in that. You know, on so one hand, social democracy espouses either it, I mean, capitalism is literally the best thing, it's the best shit in the world, or it's not perfect, but it's the best thing we can do. And if you kind of democratically get everybody out to vote every two or four years, then you can, then you don't really have to worry about class, uh, especially not in a Marxist sense. You can all just kind of socially and democratically have equality, right? Just kind of forget about that class stuff. You just have social democracy. And also social democracy is an internal way of organizing society. It has nothing to do with how it relates to other states. Um, if you're a social democracy, you obviously would probably be very just. And in fact, you might be enlightened enough where you need to lead other nations, as many so-called self-identifying social democracies have purported themselves. So, yeah. And then on the other hand, as you said, democratic socialism has said, no, we are a distinct alternative to social democracy. 
democratic socialism says that capitalism is bad and at times maybe maybe some revolutions we might support but primarily we support the gradual populist movement not necessarily class but a plurality of of people groups or identities can kind of use politics as well as organizing like labor and tenant organizing and political organizing to kind of gradually push and evolve the community into socialism, uh, maybe communism. A lot of democratic socialism and social dem you know, democratic tendencies are explicitly anti-communist. When they hear the word communist, there's this fear of authoritarianism. There's this fear of hierarchy and oppression or whatever. And so, yeah, so I do think that is that that's a big distinction between social democracy and democratic socialism in theory. One says capitalism's excesses can be tamed. The other one says we can gradually reform our way out of those excesses by primarily the electoral process and mass involvement in organizing. Not only that, but that that the state and the society that exists can become something fundamentally different through these means. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, as we talked in our episode on uh, on contradiction, I mean, I really don't hear too many democratic socialists talk about contradictions, but the opposites of the bourgeoisie and the proletarian class, they don't really like flip from a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie to a dictatorship of the proletariat. There's just kind of this gradual evolution into workers now have power and it was done through people getting out to vote and unions saying, hey, we want to have power in in the political sphere or something like that. But that's all in theory. So materially and historically, I think it's fair to say that the so-called democratic socialist or social democratic nations really have had zero difference materially. And, and that's why people bring up the Nordic model all the time. They're like, look at all the social goods that internally places like Sweden and Norway have, right? And it's it's true. Internally, you know, the workers there, they actually have access to a lot of nice stuff. It's very comfortable, very easy. And I think when people see that, they're like, well, that's democratic socialism or social democracy. It doesn't really matter. But yeah, I think the main point is that historically materially social democracy and democratic socialism doesn't actually look any different even the the so-called you know democratic socialist movement here in the US with people like bernie or the squad leading that movement some people see that as very like right wing or centrist or conservative compared to the quote unquote more liberal or progressive social democracies in Europe and other parts of the world mm -hmm. yeah. yeah let me let me just jump in and say that on one hand <laughs> I get it because I, I haven't had health care for most of my adult life, even in the Imperial Corps. And God, I'd sure like a Bernie Sanders presidency more than I would like a Joe Biden presidency. So that's the question. If that's the only question on the table. Sure. What the hell? Let's do it. Let's be Bernie supporters. But when we're working for communism, we have to see that this is a dead end. Both of these roads are dead ends and they trickle out in about the same place. One of the theological trends that falls in line with the social democracy and democratic socialist kind of tendencies is that really popular social gospel movement 
that we all read about in seminary, if you went to seminary. And if you haven't read about it, it was a very, very popular and widespread movement here in the U.S. as well. So, Chris, what do you think social gospel, the gospel movement, where does that fall in line with this conversation with the social dem and democratic socialist tendencies? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I went to a seminary called Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. It's in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. So I just want to put all my cards out on the table. We were a, a seminary that was very proud of our social gospel tradition because, in part, it was more progressive than most seminaries out there. That's true, because most of Christianity in the United States has been deeply reactionary. So we have to come to terms with that. I think this podcast has done a great job of thinking about that. So the big name in social gospel Christianity is Walter Rauschenbusch. So Rauschenbusch's big thing was social safety nets. Um, he He talked about the kingdom of God as this world in which everyone has enough. Um, but even then, so so it's a very different world at, at like, you know, turn of the century. Um, Walter Rauschenbusch doesn't have this lens of, of modern imperialism. There is imperialism, but not to the extent that we see today, right? Um, so on one hand, it's sort of understandable that Rauschenbusch would, would think that what we need to do really is just divide the the riches better and we can have uh, the society that God actually intends for us. Whenever this tradition is is touted in the 21st century, there's a problem (laughs) because of what we've already named, because imperialism is on the table. We are firmly in the stage of capitalism, imperialism. Yeah, and I think one of the main questions that things like the social gospel miss is the question of power. Or perhaps power is perceived through just monetary wealth, right? If you redistribute the money, then you're redistributing power. And that's not the case in a class society because class is not just about who has money and who doesn't, right? It is their relations of production, appropriation, and distribution. Not only at your single workplace, not only within your nation, but also across the world. There's a global system of production. There's a global system of appropriation and distribution now. And I think that is one of the, the great like downfalls right, of something as great and progressive as the social gospel movement, which continues to thrive today. Right? A lot of Christians are very – in the U.S., you know, we have a lot of progressives who see the concentration of wealth in the few hands of a few billionaires in the U.S. as very unjust. It's true. It is unjust. Uh, we see the rising homelessness. And um, Chris, as you mentioned, the lack of access to basic health care among millions and tens of millions of U.S. Americans alone, um, just internally speaking. Uh, and we see these things as, as incredibly unjust. Progressives do. And I think that's beautiful. But the problem with the social gospel movement is that it fails to get to an analysis of class power. Um, and that's what we're after. We're not just after better working conditions. We're not just after better living conditions. We understand that if we want to end the production of suffering and agony amongst our neighbors, amongst the people of the world, we're going to have to actually address these these systemic relations of who owns and who doesn't own, who controls and who does not control the production distribution of surplus. Uh, and that's what revolutionary Marxism gets at. Yeah. 
when you say that, I'm just going to add one more thing to this. What comes to mind is the ways in which our Marxist analysis should should drive us not to think so emotionally or not to think so morally about these issues. Like uh, Rauch and Bush, uh, for example, tended to talk about how um, the the ways in which um, wealth was so accumulated in the hands of a few was a moral problem. Perhaps there's a place for us, most of us who are Christians, I mean, this is faith and capital after all, to talk about morality, right? But on the other hand, our Marxist analysis teaches us to think in terms of concrete, in terms of material, in terms of relationships, concrete relationships. And that makes all the difference in the ways we understand um, what's actually going on, the reasons why the world is shaped the way it is. I think that's a great point, because even in a bourgeois society, a society divided by class, something that can be conceived as moral to one group of people could be conceived as immoral to another. And if the majority of people were like more than comfortable, right? They're like maybe the majority of people in a particular nation are well off, very comfortable. And yet maybe there's uh, a lot of exploitation still. But the main concern is whether there's a so-called fair distribution uh, of access and of the goods. That's an example where the question of what is morally wrong and morally right can really start to take a different turn where does it really matter if, if exploitation is so-called immoral? Because all of us are doing really well. We're all we're all taken care of, even though I have a boss. My manager is like my best friend. You know what I'm saying? I've got a really nice manager. He had me over for a cookout the other day. And so, yeah, that, that moral question, I think, can be stripped when we start to lose sight of the material and concrete analysis of our relations in the world. Yeah. Great point. I like what you named. There's a morality of, of each class. And probably some within within each class, but there's a, a bourgeois, petty bourgeois, proletarian, um, lump and proletarian morality. Um, we have to take that into consideration. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's not a, great... a Christian morality. That's that's a great point. Yeah, values, morals, and principles are all produced uh, within a class society. So before we talk a little bit about Maoism, Chris. I, I thought we could also throw out woke imperialism. And and even though it's kind of embedded within everything that we've been talking about, but I just wanted to say that woke imperialism is that that form of imperialism that's naturalized or justified because there's this kind of progressive inclusive nature. Maybe there's an identification of, um, of an individual, um, right? It, it's not everything's addressed for the entire oppressed community, but it's just an individual from that oppressed community is put in a position of power, but not just power, but put in a position of exploitation. So maybe they are made a landlord. So in the city I live, Charlotte, North Carolina, a lot of the managers, the tenant managers that we, that my organization goes up against, a lot of them are people of color. And maybe you're like, whoa, whoa, how could you both be a person of color and managing these slum conditions that all of these tenants that are also primarily uh, black people, how, how could you be supporting the landlord, right? Or in, in Livian, uh, the Charlotte Housing Authority. Woke imperialism says, well, if you just put 
an oppressed person in that position of power, in that position of exploitation, then things will be better for everyone. Um, another example is if you, say, make a general in, in the military, in the U.S. military, if they're the ones sending the drone, drone strikes uh, against Yemen, against Iran, if you have a bunch of trans persons who are weaponized and invading Venezuela, like that's so-called like progressive. Anyways, that woke imperialism, I think, can really creep in to a lot of our liberal tendencies and spaces. Could, did you have anything to say to the in terms of the whole tax the rich and kind of reform our way to a better future, Chris? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we can, <laughs> I mean, point at anything in our society right now, we could, we could talk about it. But I think, you know, um, in Hillary Clinton's campaign, we saw a very clear um, you need to support Hillary Clinton because she is a woman. And some of us now let's let's begin by saying, of course, there were people who were incredibly sexist, who, who were misogynist the entire way through. That's, of course, true. And also we said, hey, look at all of these policies. Look at this this long tradition she has of just screwing over the poor. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Who are yeah. disproportionately women. Absolutely. Yeah, good point. We see it we see it again with with um AOC. We see it with Kamala Harris. Um Kamala Harris is a great example when we think about policing. There's a big conversation in the United States right now. Um how do we make sense of a black woman who has has headed some of the the, the largest police terror organizations in the United States? Absolutely. How do we make sense of that? Um, having a class analysis helps us make some sense of that, I would yeah. say. Absolutely. Yeah. And as we're about to talk about in a minute here, you know, Maoism can help us avoid woke imperialism. It can help us avoid the social democratic and democratic socialist tendencies. It can help us um, avoid the things like social imperialism, pursuing things that are just benefiting a particular people in a particular nation at the expense of the masses of people across the world, especially uh, those of us in the imperial core. So, Chris, let, let's talk about Maoism for a second. How might Maoism respond to some of these concerns, like a movement that seeks to to critique the one percent, or to tax the rich, or to build a strong trade union movement here in the imperial core? What does Maoism? What might Maoism have to say to? Some of these popular movements, right? Like Fight for 15, just general let's reform life here in the U.S. movements. Absolutely. Yeah, let's just take one second to remind listeners about what what Maoism is, just the basics. Um, when we say Maoism, we're talking about Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. We're talking about a, a tradition that is advancing in stages based on the successful revolutions and the new challenges that each has faced. Um, in the course of its development and the new things it teaches us. That's basically what we mean when we say Maoism. Um, How would Maoism respond to Fight for 15, for example? Well, Maoism would begin with the tradition of of Marx that is uh, understanding, um, that is demystifying the material relations between people. Would understand that whenever we talk about 15 for workers in every level of societal production here, that this wealth is not produced by these workers. It's simply not. If we take 
if we take a materialist look at the ways in which wealth is produced in the United States, we have to come to this conclusion. It seems so clear to me. <laughs> what do you think, Chase? Yeah, that's a great point on social imperialism, right? That you can't just be organizing workers for the workers' self-interest, whether it be that particular corporation or even an entire industry or even the entire uh, class of workers in a particular nation like the United States alone. Um, understanding how that wealth is produced not just within the U.S., but across the entire world is, is absolutely fundamental if we genuinely are for the crushing of capitalism and colonialism. So we've gone through Marx. Now let's go through Lenin. Lenin's contribution, one of Lenin's contributions, is that we are in a stage of capitalist imperialism, that we're not just understanding nations within themselves, we're understanding nations in relation, um, dominant relations, oppressed nations and oppressor nations. And that's a leap made through the Leninist tradition. And then the Maoist tradition teaches us that that not only <laughs> do we have to follow this this um, this line through Lenin's Russian Revolution, right? That we have to um, establish a dictatorship of the proletariat uh, by uh, defeating the bourgeoisie and their allies. We also have to understand that the the base and superstructure are involved, and and creating a socialist society means changing the ways in which people think. <laughs> All of us, right? So the things we ask for, fifteen dollars an hour. What does that mean in relation to the, um, let's say, the, the Mexican farmer making a dollar a week? I don't know what the concrete numbers are. Let's say, I mean, but the wages are, are obviously um, just minute in comparison to what imperial workers make. This isn't to say that imperialist workers should shut up about their suffering or their um, indignity on the job or in life in general. In, in class society. But if we understood ourselves properly in relation to to all of our allies, we would be a fighting force, man. Yeah, I think that's a great point and clarification because I think there is this popular question. I was like, okay, is all organizing bad then? Like, should we never organize labor? Should we never organize tenants? Should we not organize communities for uh, transformation like locally? And for us, I think from a mouse perspective is, no, of course we of course we should be organizing, right? Most people aren't organizing and that's a, that's a major problem. We should be organizing workers. We should be organizing tenants and communities. But to what ends is the question, right? So some people are organizing workers for the sake of either, I don't know, making life slightly less miserable or even... You know, they may be militantly organizing them for great advances for them, their family, their communities. And that has nothing to do with making revolution or supporting revolutionary struggles against the U.S. or, or crushing its settler colonial relations once and for all. Right. That has everything to do with making the imperial core more comfortable for a sector of its working class. And on the other hand, from a Maoist perspective. So I, I, I organize tenants uh, here in Charlotte. Chris, you're doing organizing through For the People, and you all have some different initiatives and, and different different groups do, um, different Maoist groups do different kinds of mutual aid work. 
So you could do mutual aid for the purposes of just feeding people, and that's kind of like the end goal. Or you could do mutual aid work. You could organize tenants. You could organize workers for the purposes of radicalizing and raising consciousness towards uh, taking a revolutionary theory to the masses, learning from the masses about the particular uh, experiences and suffering and conditions and frustrations that they have, developing a particular program, right, using the universal principles of, of revolutionary Marxism and Maoism to develop a particular program for that community or for that, that nation, and then applying it to the point where the masses are led to the necessity of waging revolution, which unfortunately is actually going to take a lot of sacrifice. I think that's something that I've never heard in more liberal organizing spaces, right? The goal is not sacrifice. The goal is to gain for a lot of uh, liberal reformist organizers. But I think there's actually a necessity where in the U.S. especially, there will be sacrifice and that's something that actually we should be honest and explicit about in our organizing. Yeah, Christian communists, pick up your cross. Excellent. Well, cool. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask Chris, and uh, we could wrap, wrap this up on is, you know, you and I were both settlers here in the settler colony of the United States. We are also um, proletarian or working class, however you want to think about that. I'm sure we can you know, have a conversation about that in itself. But what might the so-called white working class what might proletarian settlers here in the U.S., what, what should we be struggling for and, and how? In light of this whole tax the rich conversation or the general, you know, should we be unionizing for better con working conditions or should we be cooperativizing our workplaces and housing? Uh, mm. In light of this general kind of reformist tendency within the U.S., what might proletarian settlers actually be struggling for and through what means? Absolutely. So if you're not organizing, you're not doing anything. That's, that's the first thing I think. You must be organizing. Part of an organization, at the very least, developing yourself for further organization in the future. But if you can, if there's a principled organization near you, get involved. Uh, I've mentioned FTP. Uh, Chase is part of a uh, uh, tenants organization that's doing some great work. Um, so build militant organizations <laughs> that that are anti-imperialist to the core, struggling for socialism. I think that's all we have. So you mentioned anti-imperialism, and and I'm just curious, you know, why anti-imperialism? Why should that be a priority among white settlers here in the U.S.? Well, first, it's understanding that we cannot have a socialism much less a communism that is not uh, solving this question of nations and what it means to live in a, in a global society where in the imperialist, imperialist cores, wealth is produced by the peripheries, <laughs> by not only the peripheries, the poorest of the poor in the poorest of places, right? So if we can't, if we can't name at the very least that um, when we struggle for socialism, we mean land back to those from whom it was stolen, uh, land to those uh, who have been forced to produce in the United States, um, wealth back to those who have been forced to mine minerals for the United States uh, in African nations. If we can't name these things, we can't have socialism. So if you call yourself a socialist, this is where we have to begin. And 
one way we say this is that um, the question of oppressed nations and oppressor nations in this moment is the primary contradiction that faces us in our in our work, right? Until we can um, until we can solve this particular question, socialism is not on the table. So we build socialist ideology, we build class struggle, but it's always, always, always anti-imperialist. I'm right on board, Apostle Chris. That was a great word. Yeah, all right, dude. Well, my friend, thanks for chatting with me tonight about AOC's dress at the Met Gala. I was really concerned about it, and it was really kind of stirring some feelings up in me. And I'm glad you talked to me for about an hour about AOC, um, her ideology, her political line, and her dress. Hey, I didn't even mention the real problem with her dress. It just wasn't very modest. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to leave the uh, the battle between the, the heavens and, and, and hell. I'm going to lay that to rest tonight, all right? It's been good to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Good to talk with you.